Good morning. Well, it's the first day of the week. It's the first Sunday of a new year, the first Sunday of a brand new decade. New opportunities, new beginnings, certainly new resolutions. I know the year is pretty early, but I hope you're keeping up with your New Year's resolution. I made a New Year's resolution this year. My resolution was I was going to lose 10 pounds this year. I know the year's early, but so far so good. Only 15 pounds to go. <laughs> my wife tells me quit eating ice cream every night if you want to lose weight. I said, hey, my mother didn't raise a quitter. <laughs> oh. You know, for a, a preacher, the first Sunday of a new year is always a little bit of a challenge, maybe because we're arrogant enough to believe that the first sermon that we preach in a new year is going to kind of set the tone for the entire year. I don't really think that's realistic, but it is a time of year when we're sort of programmed to look forward. It's kind of hardwired into us. And the first of the year, we, you know, we've, we've thought about where we've been, but now we're kind of programmed to look forward. A long time ago, somebody made this profound observation. He who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. And I want you to think about that this morning. He who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. You know, we live in a culture that is obsessed with how. Bookstores sell books, infomercials, clickbait ads, all try to get us to focus on how. How to lose weight, how to make more money, how to make uh, money in real estate, how to look younger, how to live our best lives. There's not a whole lot of books, not a whole lot of infomercials on why. Why do I do what I do? Why do I knock myself out? Why do I work so hard? What's the why that's big enough to live for when the how-to isn't big enough anymore? I want to kick off this new year by just reminding us of our why. Because I'm convinced there's one great why. Really only one. And I want you to know that that one great why is the why of this church. And it can be your why as well. This why came to the human race in the strangest way. Listen to what Matthew writes in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I'll make you fishers of men. One day this... One time, Carpenter is walking along. He sees two men who are fishing, and he speaks words that are going to rock their lives, speaks words that are going to change the world. And it's the great invitation, really, to the whole human race. Follow me. Jesus says, follow me, and your life is going to be more than just about making money. Follow me, and you're going to have something far more noble to pursue than just happiness or success. Follow me and learn the only why that really matters. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Follow me and you'll know God. 
Follow me and you'll be undone by grace. Follow me and you'll be healed by mercy. Follow me and you'll be captured by a vision of eternity. You have a hope stronger than death. You'll feed the hungry. You'll serve the forgotten. Follow me and with my help, we'll change the world. One person at a time. Follow me and I'll send you out to to fish for people. They've never had an offer like that before. There's never been an offer like that before. I'm sure you've all heard the story about the old-timer in this town who was known as the best fisherman in the entire town. One day, a stranger shows up and asks the old man if he could go fishing with him. And so, 6 o'clock the next morning, they're on a boat in the middle of the lake. And the stranger realizes that the old man didn't bring a fishing pole, didn't bring any tackle. All he had was an old rusty tackle box. He opened the tackle box and he took out a stick of dynamite. He lit the fuse, threw it in the water. This underwater explosion and about 10 dead fish float to the top. He scoops them up, puts them in the boat. Stranger takes out a badge and says, I'm a game warden and you're under arrest. The old man very calmly just reaches back into his rusty tackle box, takes out another stick of dynamite, lights it, puts it in the stranger's hands, tells the stranger, are you just going to sit there or are you going to (laughs) fish? Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Now, you have heard preachers, I'm sure, all your life tell you that that Greek word that Paul uses there for power, dunamis, is the same word that we get dynamite from. So Jesus takes a stick of gospel dynamite, and he puts it in these men's hands. And he says, are you just going to sit there, or are you going to fish? Matthew tells us, At once they left their nets and followed him. Something about this man Jesus made them know this is a chance of a lifetime. So we're told they left their nets. Everybody has nets. Their nets were their security. Their nets were their identity. It was their familiar world. It was their comfort zone. They left their nets. And it sounds like they just walked away. They just left them there for somebody else to deal with. We all have nets, don't we? I wonder what your nets are. They followed Jesus. And we're going to find out that they would be Jesus-obeying and Jesus-loving and Jesus-centered and Jesus-haunted and Jesus-followers really for the rest of their lives. They didn't always get it right. They didn't always understand everything that Jesus was telling them. They got confused sometimes, got a little bit sideways on some things. But what we find out is these are men who would learn to find out that it was an honor to suffer and to die to be considered a follower of Jesus. They had a why that meant they could face any how. And then a little bit later, Matthew tells us this in verse 21. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. It's interesting. Jesus doesn't tell either of these sets of brothers, follow me and you'll be saved. He doesn't say, follow me and you'll make a lot of money. 
He doesn't say, follow me and your life will be easy. Follow me and we'll take care of the Romans. He doesn't say any of those things. What he does say is, follow me and I'll use you. Follow me and I'll put you to work. They were given a new why to live for. They were going to follow Jesus, which meant they were going to watch Jesus very closely. They were going to pay attention to what he did. They were going to listen very closely. They were going to pattern their lives after what they saw Jesus living his life. They were going to model their behavior after his behavior. They were going to treat other people the way Jesus treated people. They were going to serve the way Jesus served. They were going to love the way Jesus loved. They were convinced that this man and his message really could change the world. Jesus' deal was, follow me and I'll send you out to fish for people. That's still the deal. Follow me and I'll send you out to fish for people. That's our deal. That's the why of our church. Martha and I were recently in Nashville. Um, We both went to school there, um, but we were there visiting some family, and we had uh, lunch at a restaurant. Martha and I walked in. We are kind of waiting for my daughter and her family to catch up with us. A man walked up behind me, slapped me on the back, and said, Stutz, what are you doing here? And I turned around and thought, who is this? Who is this? Who is? I should know this guy. Obviously, I know this guy. Who is this? Carrie, wow, great to see you. He said, yeah, I recognized Martha as soon as you walked in, then I saw you. Wow, you look great. The older I get, the more people I have telling me, wow, you look great. Only old people tell each other that, by the way. (laughs) And when an old person tells another old person, wow, you look great, what they mean is, wow, you're not dead. (laughs) You never hear two 10-year-olds meet on a playground and say, wow, you look great. Did you have some work done? They don't say that. It's just us old people. I have a magnet on my refrigerator. One of my favorite quotes from Satchel Page: how old would you be if you didn't know how old you are? Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. As God's grace reaches more and more people, we're going to fish for more and more people, they will offer to the glory of God more prayers of thanksgiving. For this reason, we never become discouraged. Even though our physical being is gradually decaying, yet our spiritual being is is renewed day by day. So what makes somebody old is their spirit. It's when they lose their why. Paul says, on the outside, I'm not looking too good. On the outside, I'm not doing so well. I'm kind of I'm wasting away on the outside. But you know what? My inner man, my inner being on the inside, I'm being renewed. On the inside, I'm getting stronger. On the inside, I'm more energized. On the inside, I'm younger. And by the way, I'm not doing it by myself. I've had some work done. When does a church get old? When do we as a church, when do we get old? Is it when the church itself reaches a certain age? Is it when the the average member gets to a certain age number-wise? I don't think so. I think a church gets old when it becomes self-absorbed and self-enclosed and self-preoccupied 
And somehow she forgets that there's a whole world of people right outside our doors that God loves dearly who are facing sin and death and hell. Church gets old when people forget the why. And I don't want to be that person. And I don't want to be a part of that church. And I was trying to think of a way to kind of explain this. And I want you to think of it this way. Here's a picture of three chairs. That chair in the middle, that, that blue chair, that represents my place in the family of God. It's where I sit. It's probably where you sit as well. When you first became a Christian, there was a chair for you. Question, how many of you can remember when you first became a Christian? Yeah, we all can, right? We can all remember when we first became a Christian. I remember it. It was January of 1972 for me. I came to a place in my life, I was convicted of God's love. I was convicted that I was a sinner. And I wanted to repent of those sins. And I went public with the fact that I wanted Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. A guy named Ray Beggs baptized me into Jesus, and that chair was waiting for me. I've been sitting in that chair for a long time. 48 years I've been working in the vineyard. Some years a little more focused and a little more productive than others. But for 48 years, that's been my chair. Some of you have sat in that chair a little bit longer than I have. Probably most of you have sat in that chair not quite as long as I have. But we get pretty comfortable in that chair. We get to feel like that's our chair. In fact, we get a little bit offended when somebody wants to take our seat. It's our chair. Then there's that chair to the left, that red chair. That chair represents people who came before me. You know, someone invited me to sit down with them. I keep telling you this over and over. None of us figured this out by ourselves. We've all had someone who's helped us understand God's word a little better. We've all had someone who introduced us to Jesus. Someone made a place for you. Someone made a place for me. I was first introduced to Jesus. I, I, I first went to church when I was two weeks old. My mom and dad took me. I don't remember too much about it. I am told that I loved it. But I'll tell you what I do remember. I remember Bob and Pat Long, and I remember Harv Smeltzer, and I remember Jeannie Irwin, names that don't mean anything to you, but they were important people in my life. There were people who sat in that red chair beside me. They were people who helped me better understand God's Word. They helped me fall deeper in love with Jesus. Those were people in my life who sat in that chair, along with my parents and a couple brothers and a sister and some aunts and uncles and grandparents. You know, you've got your own list of people who sat in that red chair beside you. By the way, if they're still alive, you ought to thank them. Again, we didn't get in that middle chair by ourselves. Now, don't misunderstand me. God put us in the middle chair, okay? I mean, it's God who adds to the church daily those who are being saved. But God has always used people to introduce other people to Jesus. People who know Jesus, introducing people who don't know Jesus so they can come to know Jesus. You can actually get a picture of that line of chairs all the way back to Jesus. That's the great thing about the church. There's nothing like the church. 
You know, it began with Jesus telling his friends. And then those friends told their friends. And those friends told their friends, sometimes at a very high cost. And every generation since, there's been someone sitting in those chairs right down to this generation, right down to me sitting in the blue chair. Not a single generation was skipped. Then there's that yellow chair. That yellow chair is going to represent people who don't yet know Jesus. The psalmist says in Psalm 78, We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, His power and the wonder He has done, and they'll put their trust in God. These are people who are still yet to come, people who, who don't yet know Jesus. It's kind of what that third chair is for. And that's a really important chair. That yellow chair is a really important chair. Now you can think of those three chairs sort of like the, the past, the present, and the future. And I believe that a healthy church is going to pay close attention to all three of those chairs. You know, a lot of churches are what you might call a two-chair church. Maybe it's just those two chairs to the right there. They, they reach the next generation, and they do a lot of wonderful things. But their anchor doesn't go all the way back to Jesus. I mean, they're doing great things, and they're focused on the future. But they're not anchored in Jesus. They're not anchored in His Word. They don't, they don't have the joy and the challenge of a legacy to pass on. They've missed what I think is the main thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says this, What after all was Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned each to a task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Verse 10. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul said, who am I? Who's Apollos? We're just guys who sat in that, that blue chair, I mean, in that red chair. We're just guys who watered a little bit. We're just guys who planted a little bit. But make no mistake, the foundation is Jesus. Our foundation has to go back to Jesus. A, a two-chair church whose foundation is not on Jesus is doomed to fail. Our foundation has got to be on Christ and His Word. But more often, you see a church where I think the chair on the right is missing. Places that have a great past where God has done amazing things. And they sort of live in the past, the glory days. And if we could just get back to the way it was, and if we could just get back to the who we were, and for whatever reasons, they, they don't focus at all on the future. And they age, and they decline, and eventually they just die out. They fail to recognize the need to stay focused on that yellow chair as well. You know, I, I just told you, and most of you know me well enough to know, when it comes to church, I'm a lifer, okay? And I never apologize for that. I, I thank God that I had parents and and family and church family who invested so much into me as a young guy in a spiritual way. 
And I've told you so many times before, I love the Lord's church. I love the church. This whole thing you hear today, Jesus, yes, the church, no. That is not biblical. You can't have Jesus without the church. Jesus died for the church. He's the head of the church. He established the church. It bothers me to hear people complain and, and, and kind of rag on the church. It bothers me a lot. You can't have Jesus without the church. I've known that my whole life. But I know for some of you, probably for a lot of you, your story is a little bit different. You came to Jesus as an adult. And I suspect there were times in your life when you were a little bit skeptical about church, a little bit skeptical about religion or really anything spiritual. And you sat in the back row so, you know, you could make a run for it if anything weird happened. And you didn't know the songs and you didn't know the verbiage. You weren't really comfortable sitting in any seat. But then somewhere, somehow, you fell in love with Jesus. And you're sitting in that blue chair now. A church is a great church when people care just as much or more about the church chair of the future as they do the chair of the present or even the chair of the past. Let me try to make this personal for just a minute. I, I want you to take out your cell phone. I think it's the first time I've ever told a congregation, take out your cell phone, turn it on. I want you to go to your pictures, and I want you to find a picture of someone you would say is sitting in that yellow chair. Someone that you know well enough to have a picture in your phone of that you say, okay, they're not in the blue chair yet. Their relationship with Jesus isn't quite what it should be. Maybe it's an adult, maybe it's a, you know, a co-worker, a friend, a family member, maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a grandchild, somebody that, okay, they're going to need help in their spiritual life. Find a picture of someone that you say, they're in that yellow chair. They're going to need somebody to help them fall better in love with Jesus. If you find a picture of somebody, I want you to hold it up. Mine's the first picture in my, in, in my pictures, by the way. It's my grandkids. They're great kids. Their parents are fantastic. They're doing their best to, to teach them about God, but they're going to need some help. They're going to need some people helping them for those kids to fall in love. We all know people that we're really concerned about their spiritual well-being. We know them well enough that we carry a picture of them around with us all the time. I know people that I dearly love. And I, I don't want to judge anyone, but, but I've got to believe that, you know, the relationship with the Lord isn't what it should be. And I pray all the time, and I pray like crazy, God, put someone in their lives. Put someone in their lives that loves them enough and loves you enough that they can connect that person to Jesus. I pray that prayer all the time. And I know you do too. And that prayer is being prayed all over the world. God, put someone in that person's life that I love, someone that can influence them to pay more attention to Jesus. It might very well be that you are the answer to someone's prayer. That you're the one in somebody's life that can make that connection. Psalm 78. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, 
what we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. We have a command. We have a responsibility to tell other people about Jesus. We just do. Jesus is still looking for people to follow him. People that that will say, yeah, but we're inadequate. We're not smart enough. We're not capable enough. We're not righteous enough. We're not holy enough. And all those things are true of all of us. But we're going to keep following. And we're going to keep reaching. And we're going to keep listening. We're going to keep encouraging. We're going to keep praying. We're going to keep meeting. We're going to keep serving. We're going to keep sending. Because we have the only why that matters. We follow a risen Savior. The Son of God who died for our sins on a cross. Brought back to life. Who has said, follow me. I want you to follow me. I want you to join me. Because I want to use you. In your world. Your office. Your school. Your home. Your apartment. Your sphere of influence. I want to make you fishers of men. That's the why. And with that why, I, for one, I've tried just about any how. If that's the why that I'm focused on, I'll try just about any how to connect people to Jesus. You know, sometimes churches get so locked in on the how of programs and music and styles and things done decently and in order. But let me remind you something. He who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. We want to connect people to Jesus. We want to tell people the good news of Jesus. Our why is what centers us. Our why is what drives us. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. Follow Jesus. It's the beginning of a brand new year. Brand new decade. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Jesus has placed a stick of gospel dynamite in your hand. He's lit the fuse. Are you going to just sit there or are you going to fish? This morning, let's go ahead and be standing and singing as we answer that question.